Game changer. I've used a few different heart and soil supplements throughout my entire pregnancy. And it was a night and day difference from my first pregnancy. I've had clarity of mind, not foggy pregnancy brain. I've had extra stamina instead of getting winded easily. And often I had no morning sickness. My baby is also ultra healthy. I'm such a picky eater. I could never eat organs, but I know that eating nose to tail is one of the healthiest things humans can do for their bodies. So I'm extremely grateful for these high quality supplements. I love it. Mood memory and brain. I've been digging mood memory and brain recently for the phosphatidylserine. I take it before I do podcasts. I take it to help my brain work, <laughs> getting back into work after getting back from Austin. But what we make it hard in soil are grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, desiccated organ supplements, the finest on the planet in glass, because plastic is bullshit. And they will help you get more organs into your life or your toddler's life or your pregnancy life to help with breastfeeding, to help with pregnancy, to help with avoid pregnancy brain. Check us out at heartandsoil.co. This review was on mood memory and brain, but it sounds like Annie has also taken other supplements from heart and soil. Our goal is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical optimal health. And that's my goal as well. On this week's podcast, I wanted to talk again about how to feed kids, how to feed a baby right after the baby's born, how to support yourself while you're breastfeeding, how to support your partner while she's breastfeeding, what nutrients mom needs to support breastfeeding. Can moms eat animal-based? How should moms eat while they're breastfeeding? When can meat and organs be introduced into a baby's diet? What are the optimal first solid foods for kids? What can kids eat through infancy, toddler years, and into early years? All of that I talk about in this podcast on how to feed your children and make little mutant ultra healthy X-Men and women, <laughs> X-Boys and girls, so they can be awesome kids. So it's always a fun thing to talk about. Hopefully it is valuable for you. Also want to give a shout out to my sponsors. I've got to thank them for supporting the podcast. Without them, the podcast would not be possible. It's free information. First up, I want to give a shout out to Eight Sleep. Good sleep, ultimate game changer. It's an incredible medicine, rejuvenative, consistent good sleep can reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, decrease the risk of heart disease, lower your blood pressure, even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep for sure. When I travel, when I don't have my cooling mattress, my eight sleep pod pro cover, I suffer because I sweat in the bed. It is just hard. I imagine humans were supposed to sleep on the earth and the earth is more cool or cooling at night than my mattress, but gosh, I sweat in the mattress. It is really hard, but I really appreciate the cooling mattress and the eight sleep pod pro cover. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation, pairing dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. Add the cover to any mattress, start sleeping as cool as 55 or as hot as 110. Temperature of the cover adjusts each side of the bed independently. You do biometrics, bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create optimal sleeping environment. It's like AI for your bed. It even does HRV. Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, get overall more restful sleep. I am a super fan. Check them out at eightsleep.com, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com, front slash carnivoremd for exclusive Memorial Day savings through June the 6th. Cool down this summer with eight sleep. Now shipping to the USA, UK, Canada and Australia. That is eight sleep, E I G H T S L E E P dot com front slash carnivore MD. 
to get savings on the eight sleep mattress. It'll improve your sleep. You'll sleep more deeply. You'll sleep better. And that will up your game overall. I just got back from hunting in Texas with my buddy Monsel through one of his sacred hunts. These are pretty awesome because not only do you learn the basics of how to track, stalk, kill, and field dress wild game animals, but he adds a ritual Native American component that makes it a real rite of passage. On this hunt, we went to West Texas, hunted on a pretty cool ranch. We stalked a bunch of different animals. I was able to kill a black buck antelope doe, and I got to field dress it myself, which was challenging, but totally worth it, covered in blood, very meaningful, harvesting my own meat. Then I got to share the meat with other people on the hunt. Incredible experiences with Monsel on the two hunts that I've been on with him. I highly recommend this. Fundamental Health listeners save $250 off their trip by mentioning my name. And there are five spots available on each hunt. So visit sacredhunting.com, front slash Paul, fill out the two-minute application, set up an exploratory call with Monsel. That is sacredhunting.com, front slash Paul, to get in on that. That is a great way to get started on your hunting experiences. Also got to give a shout out to my friends at Bluebox, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. This laptop that I'm recording this podcast on has a Bluebox EMF low, EMF reducing mat below it so that all the EMF from the laptop doesn't go into my family jewels. If you saw my reels on Instagram and TikTok, you know that your laptop, your cell phone emit a lot of radiation. I appreciate these EMF blocking pads for your laptop so you can actually put them on your lap. They also make blue light blocking reducing glasses a red light device. They make a sleep mask. They make all kinds of good stuff. They have EMF reducing earbuds as well, which are wired. That's what all the cool kids are using. Don't use those AirPods anymore. You should have seen my Instagram reel on that. How much EMF is in those? You can check them out at bluebox, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off your order. Last but not least, got to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. You can use the code CarnivoreMD there for 10% off your first order. They are the OGs of the regenerative agriculture movement. That farm is beautiful. The soil is dark. There are birds and bugs and snakes and diversity and ecosystems that are thriving. And the microbiome of that soil is rich because the soil is dark like coffee grounds and the cows are healthy and the meat is delicious. You can find them at whiteoakpastures.com. They do grass-fed, grass-finished beef, corn and soy-free chicken. They have lamb. They have turkey. They have guinea. They have pasture-raised Iberico pork, which is delicious. They're amazing. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order and CARNIVORE5 for 5% off your subsequent orders from White Oak Pastures. I love those guys. On to the podcast this week. Enjoy this one. When babies are born in the hospital, they are given a vitamin K shot. That vitamin K shot is usually phyloquinone, which is a plant-based form of vitamin K. It's essentially vitamin K1. But it begs the question, why are babies vitamin K deficient born to traditional mothers, born to mothers in mainstream society? I think many of us have a suspicion of why this might be, but I want to dive into that and many other issues around what to feed babies, breastfeeding, postpartum nutrition for mom, and what to feed infants, toddlers, and kids in this podcast based on my perspective and my research and my knowledge of an animal-based diet and anthropology with humans. So many of you can guess where a lot of this is going, um, but I want to dig into more details than I have in the past on this to help parents, expecting parents, pregnant moms, postpartum moms who are breastfeeding. And I'm going to go in in this podcast. I'm also going to discuss what 
we might do for women who cannot breastfeed. So I will address all of those in this one. When I was in medical school, the neonatal vitamin K shots always puzzled me a little bit. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that nature would design humans to be so vitamin K deficient at birth. Um, again, none of this podcast is meant to be taken as medical advice, nor should it be, but I will muse on this. I would hypothesize that most mothers are not getting enough animal-based vitamin K, which is vitamin K2, which is menaquinone rather than phyloquinone or um, other types of what we would consider to be K1, which is plant-based vitamin K. If you are familiar with my work, you are familiar with the Rotterdam study, which I can show, which is an observational study, but what it revealed was that those people who had the most vitamin K2 menaquinone in their diet had the best outcomes in terms of cardiovascular disease, specifically cardiac events and calcific aortic sclerosis. There was no correlation with vitamin K1. And this is in a population in Rotterdam. And this is a very interesting study because vitamin K2 occurs almost exclusively in animal foods. There's a little bit of vitamin K2, which tapes in many different forms, MK1 through MK11, with MK4 being the most bioavailable, probably the most bioactive form of menaquinone in humans, though we see many different types of menaquinones that are considered to be vitamin K2, technically. So what we find is that these are really only present in animal foods, except perhaps something like natto, which is fermented soybeans but it's not in the soybeans, it's in product of the bacteria that are fermenting the soybeans. So really there are no occurrences of vitamin K2 in plant foods. You might get a little bit of vitamin K2 or in the case of natto, a moderate amount of vitamin K2, which is great in a fermented soybean paste, but a lot of Americans don't eat that. And I wouldn't eat the soybeans in the first place because of all the other plant toxins that are in those soybeans. I'm not a fan of those in general. There's a much easier way to get vitamin K2, which is egg yolks, liver, meat, et cetera, animal foods, even uh, dairy that is from grass-fed cows or non-grass-fed cows usually has vitamin K2 in it. And so what I believe this vitamin K shot being necessary for many infants to prevent hemorrhagic disease of the newborn is telling us is that most women during the pregnancy are not getting enough vitamin K2. Uh, I wanna show you guys a picture of the vitamin K that is given to infants. You can see this is uh, phytonadione, phytonadione, yeah. You can see here, this is phytonadione, which is the essentially the phyloquinone. This is vitamin K1. Infants are not given vitamin K2, which is ironic, I suppose. Um, I think that within um, medical circles, people think of vitamin K1 as being involved in clotting. But what we know is that the body is pretty good at retroconverting K2 into K1, but not the reverse, which is evidenced by the Rotterdam study showing that there was no correlation between vitamin K1 intake and cardiovascular disease outcomes or calcific aortic sclerosis, but vitamin K2 led to better outcomes. This is the Rotterdam study for those who are interested. Dietary intake of menaquinone is associated with a reduced risk of coronary heart disease. The Rotterdam study, and you can see here in the abstract, the risk of coronary heart disease, all-cause mortality, and aortic atherosclerosis, which they call calcific aortic sclerosis, was studied in tertials of energy-adjusted vitamin K intake and after adjustment for age, gender, BMI, smoking, diabetes, education, and dietary factors. The relative risk of CHD mortality was reduced in the mid and upper tertials of dietary menaquinone compared to the lower tertile. Relative risk was 0.73 with a confidence interval uh, uh, between 
1.45 and 1.17. Um, and there was a relative risk of 0.43, which had a confidence interval which did not cross one, <laughs> respectively, in the upper tertiile. Now, the upper tertiile, I believe, was only 35 micrograms of vitamin K2 per day, which is a moderate amount of vitamin K2, but you'll get way more than that if you're eating grass-fed meat and organs and egg yolks every day. Who knows what would have happened in, if they had done quartiles or quintiles and had those be 50 or 75 micrograms of vitamin K2. Most of us on an animal-based diet are getting uh, probably close to 100 micrograms of vitamin K2 a day. So you can see, if you want to read that study, that's a very interesting one. And it speaks to the importance of animal-based nutrients. Back to kids. Infants are given traditionally in the hospital a vitamin K1 shot to help with clotting. More parents are refusing that, I think, because they are concerned about babies getting shots in the hospital at birth, which is their choice. But this is leading to more hemorrhagic disease of the newborn because many mothers, I believe, in our society are not eating enough vitamin K2 in their diet. And what do we know? That during pregnancy, nutrition of mom is going to influence baby's K2 status baby's vitamin K status in general, both vitamin K1 and K2. K2, I think, is the super, super important one. Many people believe that Weston Price was referring to vitamin K2 when he famously termed a substance the X factor, uh, the X nutrient, the fat-soluble nutrient, as vitamin K2 is, that he seemed to correlate with good health in these indigenous populations that he studied who were eating raw animal products in some source, whether it was organs or butter or dairy uh, of some sort or eggs. All of these animal product consuming cultures seem to have robust health. He was studying this in the 1930s, I believe. And there was a nutrient that he termed the X factor that was yet to have been determined at the time. Nutrition is always evolving. We still don't know about many nutrients, I believe, for humans that are present, especially in animal foods, perhaps in plant foods too. But I continue to believe that most plant foods and vegetables are not great for humans, nor do they lead to optimal health. So mothers aren't getting enough vitamin K2. Mothers aren't eating enough meat. Mothers are not eating enough organs. Mothers are not eating enough eggs, raw dairy, all those kind of things. So I should say that raw dairy is something that is shunned by many mothers, perhaps wisely in pregnancy due to risk of listeriosis in the baby. So baby is born. Babies are also given the hepatitis B vaccination in the hospital right when they're born. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of reason to give a baby from a family that is planning to return and seek consistent medical care or has access to medical care should they desire it, uh, a hepatitis B shot when they're born. Most babies are not doing IV drugs or having promiscuous sex, which are the main places babies get hepatitis B. So that one's never made a whole lot of sense to me. But when I asked about it during medical school rotations in OBGYN, the response I got was the fact that some mothers uh, do not return for care and they are trying to protect the infants that are really the uh, infants in families that will have the least access to care. So one of the good things about Western medicine is that it's going to serve the lowest common denominator. And one of the bad things about Western medicine is it's going to serve the lowest common denominator. We see this over and over in terms of Western medical policies and Western medical decisions, and Western medical recommendations to patients. They are often aimed at people who will not return for medical care or who have the least access to medical care, who are in the lowest socioeconomic groups and who are going to make the worst lifestyle and dietary decisions. One big part of my work is differentiating these people who will perhaps not be available or 
willing or financially able to make intentional dietary decisions, though I think most people are financially able to make dietary decisions. There are plenty of ways to eat well or better for a reasonable amount or the same amount as junk food. More on that later. Um, but these are who many medical decisions and paradigms and recommendations are based on. I'm not sure it's great for the majority of people who are intentional, who choose to make their food choices. The majority of people, I'm not sure this is the best thing for the majority of people who uh, are much more intentional, who choose to make very, I would say, wise food decisions and wise lifestyle decisions. Uh, I think these people are better served with more specific and precise recommendations, which are often different. And that goes down the rabbit hole with LDL, et cetera, which I won't go down in this podcast. With regard to feeding babies, breastfeeding is obviously the best thing. Breastfeeding is recommended for the first six months exclusively, but what do mothers do who can't breastfeed? I'll get into that in a moment, but I will say this. Mother's nutrition during pregnancy and while she is breastfeeding will influence the nutritional quality of the breast milk. We know this very, very clearly. And that is a big deal because many pregnant and nursing mothers are eating much more linoleic acid than they used to. And we know that linoleic acid will be increased in the breast milk of these nursing mothers. Now, if you believe that linoleic acid and 18 carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid is problematic for humans, something that I believe strongly, feeding a lot of that to moms, putting more of it in babies through breast milk is a really bad thing. You can see this paper, the increase in the adipose tissue linoleic acid of US adults in the last half century. Over the last half century, as I read from the abstract in the United States, dietary linoleic acid intake has greatly increased as dietary fat sources have shifted toward polyunsaturated seed oils, such as soybean oil. And they say our results indicate that adipose tissue linoleic acid has increased by 136% over the last half century in the United States. This increase is highly correlated with an increase in dietary linoleic acid intake over the same period of time. Adipose tissue linoleic acid is the only real accurate source of linoleic acid in humans. And you can see increase in LA and adipose tissue, how cool they were actually monitoring this in 1955 or 57, all the way up to, I believe this paper is uh, published in 2015. You can see percent LA and adipose tissue in two of these graphics. So if you had any doubt, that we were eating more linoleic acid as Americans and that this leads to more adipose tissue in the fat, that is pretty solid proof. I would take it one step further and say there's another correlation between increased rates of chronic disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, dementia, autoimmune disease, et cetera. Correlation is not causation, but in other podcasts, I have gone deep down the rabbit hole discussing why I believe linoleic acid is a major problematic molecule for humans. Before we go any further in this podcast, I wanted to also share the paper the opinion paper that inspired it. So this is published, I believe in 2020, oh, 2022, earlier this year. The title is Meat Helps Every Bite Count, an Ideal First Food for Infants. In the abstract, you will see new evidence-based guidelines for feeding infants from birth to 24 months. From birth to 24 months, recommend meat as an ideal first complementary food. I thought this was so cool. The abstract continues, starting at six months, infants need a variety of nutrient-dense foods, no shit, uh, including foods that are rich in bioavailable iron and zinc. Yep. Because infants and toddlers eat small quantities of food, it is critical to make every bite count in the early years. I would completely agree with that. New parents are often unsure of optimal complementary feeding practices. The goal of this article is to review red meat as a potential first complementary food for infants. 
This I think is really cool and a step in the right direction. And I will talk about why in a moment. But if you look at what nutrients infants need when they transition from breastfeeding to beginning to eat food at six months, they are the nutrients contained in meat. Imagine that. Imagine that. Vegans and plant-based dieters out there are shedding tears when they hear this, but all the nutrients babies need are found in meat because humans evolved eating meat. It's clearly written in our DNA. Every hunter-gatherer tribe does this. They feed infants meat from a very early age. So let's bookmark that. I will come back to meat as the optimal first complementary food in a moment. But you should understand that what is fed to many infants, I recently was in Austin, I went to a Whole Foods and I looked at the baby food aisle. It was a travesty, it was really saddening. And what I saw was a lot of nutrient poor food, nutrient containing food that had a lot of anti-nutrients like spinach or oats, and a lot of food in plastic, which is gonna fill kids with xenoestrogens and plastics, which is very likely endocrine disrupting. So I don't understand why we are feeding kids nutrient poor rice cereals, nutrient poor leafy greens like spinach, very few of the nutrients from spinach are gonna be absorbed, it's full of oxalates, nutrient poor foods like squash. Why is meat not widely accepted as the single greatest food for infants from six months and beyond, potentially earlier? I don't know why. Uh, I have a sense that it's because there's been a lot of fear mongering with regard to meat and how can meat possibly be good for a six month old if it's not good for a 25, 45 or 65 year old? Well, the answer is that that's really all just a philosophical falsehood in the first place. And meat is good for all of those things. Meat is clearly essential and optimal for babies. Why wouldn't it be clearly optimal and essential for all of us as adults? Most people listening to this podcast understand that it is. And by meat, I mean meat and organs. And I'll get into that in a second. But I think a lot of people in mainstream society have been misled, which is why we do this. So let's go back to infant born in the hospital. Hopefully mother has very robust vitamin K2 status. Parents make their own personal decision regarding hepatitis V vaccination in the hospital and vitamin K injection postpartum. Baby goes home, mom is able to breastfeed, mom eats lots of meat, a little bit of liver every day, maybe half an ounce, a few ounces a week, totally safe maybe a little bit of heart, maybe a little bit of other organs from time to time, egg yolks, fruit. Maybe mom doesn't eat a lot of vegetables, which means that she's going to absorb the nutrients in those meat and organs and fruit. And breastfeeding goes great. And baby does very well until six months. That's the ideal situation. Second scenario is mom cannot breastfeed for some reason. Mom doesn't want to breastfeed. Mom doesn't make a lot of milk, etc. In this situation, I think we run into a lot of problems and it's not easy to navigate. Again, none of this podcast is medical advice. It's just me thinking out loud with some research behind it to try and understand how postpartum moms and families that can't breastfeed for that, that six months might navigate it. People use formulas in this period, but if you look at most mainstream formulas, they're abysmal. So you can see here the ingredients of Similac, um, the first ingredient is corn syrup. If anyone believes that's a good thing for your baby, uh, I have news for you. The second ingredient is cow's milk protein isolate. Third ingredient is high oleic safflower oil, which has more oleic acid and less linoleic acid than regular safflower oil, but still, I think lots of extra linoleic acid. Um, next ingredient is sugar, as if corn syrup wasn't enough sugar. Next ingredient is soy oil. So that's soybean oil, super high in linoleic acid. Soybean oil fed to rats 
and monkeys makes them behave very badly. Why are we feeding it to infants? This is actually really scary stuff. Then you get coconut oil, who knows if it's hydrogenated. And then you get galacto oligosaccharides, which are potentially a good thing. Then you have uh, 2%, less than 2% of more Sicohini uh, oil, which is going to be high in linoleic acid, uh, M alpina oil, beta carotene, which is not the bioavailable form of vitamin A, lutein, lycopene, calcium phosphate, potassium chloride, potassium citrate, sodium citrate, it goes on and on. You have a few nutrients, choline chloride, well, okay, calcium, magnesium, um, iron, as far as sulfate, more choline, taurine, great, uh, aminositol, zinc, important for babies, sulfate, carnitine. Mixed tocopherols, which is vitamin E, niacinamide, which is essentially niacin, more vitamin E, calcium, vitamin A palmitate, which is the bioavailable form of vitamin A, cupric sulfate, that's going to be copper, thymine, vitamin B1, riboflavin, pyridoxine, folic acid, which is a non-bioidentical form of folate. There is no folic acid in nature that is a synthetic form of folate that many people believe could be harmful for babies, yet it is in every single formula on mainstream shelves. Uh, manganese, potassium chloride, phyloquinone, there is K1 again, but there's no K2, biotin, uh, selenium, you've got vitamin D3, but then you've got vitamin B12 in the cyanocobalamin form, again, a form of vitamin B12 that is not bioavailable, that is vitamin uh, B12, which is cobalamin plus a cyanide moiety. Why are we doing this to kids? I don't understand. There are some nucleotides, um, and that is essentially it. In this formula, here's another ingredients on yet another formula. These are both Similac. These are essentially exactly the same. But what I want to point out here is a couple of things. I want to point out that these formulas are very high in linoleic acid. And that I believe is way too much linoleic acid to be feeding a baby. These levels of linoleic acid are formulated based on average breast milk in nursing mothers in the United States. As you saw from that earlier article that I showed, Levels of linoleic acid in adipose tissue in westernized humans have been rising for the last 60 years. And if mothers eat more linoleic acid, more linoleic acid goes into the breast milk. I'm not sure that's what we should be mirroring. I believe we should be mirroring levels of linoleic acid found in hunter-gatherer breast milk, which are considerably lower than linoleic acid in um, human breast milk in the West because of what we've been eating. So not only are we feeding our babies too much linoleic acid, we are we have deluded ourselves into thinking that, that is the proper thing and formula cannot be sold, I don't think in the US, unless it has way too much linoleic acid, I believe, for babies. So we are, in my opinion, my belief, setting our babies up for failure. Obviously, linoleic acid in membranes can turn over during time, but it takes our bodies a long time to get rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids. I think a lot of kids are moving out of the breastfeeding phase with extra linoleic acid in the membranes that is setting them up metabolically for uh, a struggle as they move into their toddler years. What do kids eat when they're toddlers? They probably eat more seed oils and junk food and processed sugars. We're also giving these babies processed sugars in breast milk, or at least, excuse me, we're giving these babies, babies processed sugar in formula. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. I don't know why manufacturers do that. So you can't, in, in my opinion, if I had a child, my sister has a boy and a girl, so I have a niece and a nephew, if I were ever in charge of feeding them, they're two and four, so they're not breastfeeding anymore. Uh, if I were ever in charge of thinking about how to create a formula for them that's better, this is what I might think if I ever had a child, which I don't right now. Um, this is what I might think if my wife or partner couldn't breastfeed that baby. So I think that I might consider, again, this is just my musing. This is not to be medical advice. 
I might consider starting with a cow or goat formula, uh, a cow or goat milk that was as good as I could find, preferably grass fed. Now cows and goats milk are going to be very different than human milk. I will show you a paper in a moment showing how different they are, but I would probably add a few things to it to make it more like the milk of a human who should be eating meat rather than a ruminant who is eating grass. And I think therein lies the problem with cows and goats milk formulas or cows and goats milk exclusively fed to babies. We know that these cow and goats milk alone are not sufficient sources of many B vitamins. They don't have enough choline or taurine or biotin or riboflavin and or vitamin A necessarily in the form that you want. And these are all because the cows are not eating meat. So how could you supplement that? Well, one thing that I might consider would be taking a cow or goat milk that is grass-fed and then adding perhaps egg yolk to it, perhaps a little bit of meat that is ground up, that is cooked and ground up, or a little bit of liver. And I think those things would go a very long way. I also would consider adding some colostrum from a cow to a goat or a cow's milk. Again, this is all just sort of my hypothesis of how one might make a better formula. Don't take it as medical advice. Don't do it. Do your own research. Don't say Paul said to do this. This is Paul's formula. I can feed this to my baby. Uh, your pediatrician will shit a brick, trust me. It's just me thinking about it. Do your own research and see what works for your baby. So let's look at an article that discusses the differences between cows and goat's milk. This is called The Properties of Human Milk and Their Relationship to Maternal Nutrition. You can see here in the abstract, they say there are major differences in the content and absorption rates of vitamins and minerals from breast milk compares to cow's milk or formula. Vitamin D and vitamin K status are possible problems for a breastfed infant in certain circumstances. We talked about vitamin K already. Mom needs to eat meat and organs, then there will be no risk of vitamin K deficiency in infants. Vitamin D for breastfeeding mothers, I talked about in the last podcast, which had to do with sunlight. I found literature suggesting that if mother's vitamin D level were not 48 nanograms per ml, there's not enough vitamin D in her breast milk for the baby. Most mothers have to give their babies extra vitamin D because moms aren't in the sun enough or mom's vitamin D status isn't adequate. I am a huge fan of real sunlight exposure for a variety of reasons. Refer back to the last podcast on sunlight exposure for those reasons. In summary, the sunlight, ultraviolet light and near infrared, all of the visible wavelengths and invisible wavelengths of light appear to do beneficial things in the human skin. So the ultraviolet wavelengths do make vitamin D. They also seem to make nitric oxide and endorphins in the skin. That's why it feels good to be in the sun. And there's increasing evidence that infrared, I think it's specifically near infrared wavelengths also contribute to the production of melatonin, which is a very interesting thing. So not only are you impairing vitamin D, endorphins, nitric oxide by not going in the sun, you may not be getting enough melatonin made in your skin and other regions of your body from the deeply penetrating near infrared. There's more research that needs to be done on that, but um, I could do another podcast on that in the future. There is a lot of interesting research happening now on melatonin in the mitochondria, melatonin's antioxidant role in the mitochondria. So that is an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Nevertheless, the takeaway is that real sunlight is critical. If you live far from the equator, um, my simple solution is move near the equator. If you can't move near the equator, then I think you might consider getting ultraviolet light from some source, perhaps it's a tanning bed, but you would also want to combine that with a red and near infrared device because you want to simulate that sunlight as best as possible. And that might be one way to do it. This uh, article goes on to say the nutritional status of mothers 
appear to influence the fat concentration and thus the energy concentration of breast milk. Uh, we talked about that, as well as its fatty acid composition, like we talked about linoleic acid is much higher, and immunological properties. So if mom is eating well, then there will be certain immunoglobulins in the milk. If mom is malnourished, as vegan or vegetarian mothers will be, then there is a problem for that. There is some evidence that the concentration of vitamins in the breast milk is influenced by mother's intake. I would say yes. The response of the infant to human and formula milk differs with respect to endocrine function, stool motility, immune function, renal function. Clearly breast milk is the best. Infant formula are designed to mimic human milk as much as possible, but this is unlikely to ever be completely successful. It's kind of a sad truth. So interesting points from this article. The milk produced in the first few days after birth, the colostrum is higher in protein, vitamins A, B12, and K, and immunoglobulins than mature breast milk. Probably mom's first milk, the colostrum is supposed to have tons of vitamin K in it if mom has an adequate vitamin K status. But since most moms don't, then the colostrum is deficient. You might try supplementing with a cow colostrum. Um, it's a possibility. Those are hard to get, though um, some farmers markets do have them. Some farmers do have colostrum. And at hardened soil, we make immunomilk, which is a grass-fed desiccated colostrum. You could empty a pill of that colostrum into formula, or you can empty a pill of that um, into something else the baby is drinking a little bit to give the baby a little bit of colostrum, which might help with some of that. Obviously, cow colostrum is going to be different than uh, human colostrum, but I think it could supplement a little bit. Um, they go on to say, but it is lower in fat content and hence energy. This is the colostrum of the early milk. Now, if you go down in this article, we will also see that L-carnitine is a molecule involved in the transport of long-chain fatty acids across mitochondrial membranes. It's present in greater concentrations in breast milk than in cow's milk. Okay, how could you fix that? Well, L-carnitine is in meat. So could we possibly grind up a little bit of cooked meat and put it into a cow's milk to make a better formula for a baby who can't breastfeed? Possibly, it's a hypothesis. Again, not medical advice, just something that I might consider if I had kids and my wife or partner couldn't breastfeed. Human milk contains both linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid. They go on to say here that the ratio of linoleic to alpha-linolenic should be five to one or 15 to one. Uh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't think that you need to add any linoleic acid to the breast milk uh, in general. I don't think there should be that much linoleic acid in breast milk. I think that if um, babies are getting some animal fat, that will be fine for them. Uh, an egg yolk, I think, would be a great thing to give a baby. Uh, perhaps then you would take a cow's milk or a goat's milk and add a little bit of meat that's cooked and a little bit of cooked egg yolk to the breast milk could help make their breast milk more rich in the long-chain fatty acids, the short-chain fatty acids, all kinds of other nutrients that are not found in cow's milk or goat's milk as much. Things like choline, carnitine, like we talked about. Also taurine, as you saw on the formula that I showed you from Similac, that is also being added to breast milk. That is also found in meat and organs. Could we also add perhaps a little bit of cooked liver and just grind it all up? That to me, I think would be the closest thing that we could get to a good breast milk for a human. So I'll go on a little bit here. Um, you can see here, they say that a study that looked at the fatty acid composition of brain tissue of infants dying unexpectedly compared breastfed to formula fed infants found that those who had been breastfed had a higher mean concentration of DHA than those who had not been breastfed. Again, there's tons of DHA in egg yolks. Um, goes on, conclusively shown that the pattern of fatty acids in the maternal diet will alter the fatty acid composition for milk. Mothers, eat your eggs, <laughs> eat your butter, eat your animal fat. Milk from vegan women in Britain was found to contain five times as much linoleic acid as milk from an omnivorous woman. That is no good in my opinion. That is real bad. 
feel bad for those uh, vegan moms in Britain, those and those babies, especially. Dutch mothers on macrobiotic diets were found to have less saturated fatty acids, C15 to C20, and more polyunsaturated acids in their breast milk than mothers on omnivorous diets. Again, really problematic for infant brain, immune system, cell membrane development, really scary. If you saw my previous podcasts, you know that I am a huge fan of odd-chain fatty acids, specifically C15 and C17, which have been found to be very essential and very valuable for humans. If you're not eating animal foods, your babies are not getting as many of those essential odd-chain fatty acids. And I think that's going to compromise them long-term, which is a scary thing. In comparison with the composition of breast milk from vegetarian and omnivorous women, the concentrations of C16 and C18 were found to be negatively correlated with vegetable fat intake, positively correlated with animal fat and total fat intake. Breastfeeding moms eat your animal fat. Um, if you can't get animal fat or you can't, uh, I guess all moms can get animal fat, but if you can't breastfeed, then I think babies need to have some animal fat. I'll talk about that in a moment. Cow's milk, much higher protein content, different composition. Human milk contains more proteins, specific lactoferrin, alpha-lactalbumin, and casein that are milk-specific proteins. Um, so this is tricky to really simulate in a formula. Cow's milk has greater casein component. The main component in human's milk is whey, is alpha-lactalbumin and lactoferrin and secretory IgA, whereas in cow's milk, lactoglobulins predominate. Not a great way to really uh, simulate that in um in a formula that you are synthesizing for a baby. But it's important to know that they're not really that high. Uh, I think, again, you could add some colostrum from a cow, which might help with some of that because I believe secretory IgA and lactoferrin will be higher in the colostrum. The free amino acid taurine is present in high concentrations of human milk. Taurine is in meat. While this amino acid is not essential to adults, the ability of low birth weight infants to synthesize it is known to be limited. Again, kids need taurine. Kids need meat-based nutrients. Kids are meant to be getting breast milk from moms eating meat. Animal experiments have shown taurine deficiency to result in defects in eye development. Taurine may also be essential for fat absorption, et cetera, et cetera. Lactose is the principal carbohydrate in human milk. I think that lactose in uh, cow's milk is lower than human milk, but that will serve as a good carbohydrate source for babies rather than sucrose, which is glucose and fructose. Those are probably not ideal um, carbohydrates for babies, certainly not high fructose corn syrup, certainly not pure cane sugar. Going on, this is, article is quite valuable for any mom who can't breastfeed or is interested in the nutrients. Supplementation significantly increased concentrations of thymine, riboflavin, nicotinic acid, which is again, niacin, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, B6, et cetera, riboflavin. This is to say that mothers who are breastfeeding need to be eating meat and organs. If you can't get fresh organs, get desiccated organs like we make it hard in soil, but get fresh organs if you can. B12 content of breast milk to be associated with the maternal diet. Vegan and vegetarians' moms are starving their infants. That, in my opinion, is very sad, potentially criminal. Vitamin A content of milk in poorer populations is developing in developing countries. Again, get your vitamin A from egg yolks and a little bit of liver. Vitamin K, we talked about at length earlier. Vitamin, the bioavailability of most minerals in breast milk is much higher than from cows. So this article is really just to say that cow's milk, goat's milk, not the same as breast milk. Breast milk is always the best, but what do we do if mom can't breastfeed? How do we make the best thing? Um, I think this is important to consider. So my hypothesis, my guess here would be the following. If I had a child with a partner who couldn't breastfeed, I would probably take a grass-fed cow's milk or goat's milk. 
I would combine it with egg yolk, a little bit of cooked meat, potentially a little bit of cooked liver. And I think that that would be a really great start for a baby. You're getting those nutrients. I think if you have cooked the meat and you grind it up, that the baby should be able to digest it. And you're going to put those meat nutrients back into the milk. Is it perfect? No. I might also add some desiccated colostrum from hardened soil supplements. If it were me doing it, I probably would use a raw egg yolk because a raw egg yolk is not going to touch the shell of an egg. The shell of an egg is where the nutrient, the, excuse me, the shell of an egg is where the contaminants are. Clostridial species, Campylobacter salmonella. We don't want babies to get sick, but I think I would probably use a raw egg yolk. Again, this is not medical advice. Do not do this because you don't have to cook the egg yolk, preserve the nutrients. And if the egg yolk is still in the membrane, it's unbroken, it should be free of those bacterial contaminants on the outside of the egg shell. Another possibility is to quickly boil the outside of the egg in a shell and then to cool it and then to use the partially cooked or the partially soft egg yolk in the formula that you're making. Again, I'm not sure that anybody's really asking me to create a baby formula here, but for some reason, it was an interesting mental exercise for me in this, uh, in this space. So I think I would probably take cooked meat. I don't think that I would give an infant raw meat. Um, and I would probably take a little bit of cooked liver. I don't think I'd give an infant raw liver, but I would combine that with some colostrum and some egg yolk and a grass-fed cow or goat milk. And I think that would be a pretty good start to a formula for a baby that couldn't breastfeed. Another option for moms is to potentially do breast milk donors. Again, human proteins, human immune cells would be valuable no matter what the mom is eating. But again, mom's diet is really important. If you know somebody who's breastfeeding, who has extra breast milk, who's eating an animal-based diet or a very high quality diet, that's fantastic. I think a lot of moms don't have access to that. I think it's also beneficial to put babies in the sun for mom to get in the sun, whether she's breastfeeding or not. Let's move on to talking about six-month-old infants, even four to six-month-old infants. Generally within pediatric medicine, the consensus is that babies can start eating solid food at four to six months. So if you make it through the first four months with breast milk, fantastic. Take care of yourself, take care of your nutrition, get a lot of vitamin D, get in the sun, get in the sun with your baby. If you can't do that, think about how to get the best formula. There's probably better formulas out there than a mainstream formula, which I would not recommend. Again, I gave my hypothetical recommendation for what I would do. That is not medical advice. Um, I would not recommend you do that. <laughs> but if you get to four to six months, you can start giving the baby more solid food. And at that point, we really get to the meat of the issue, bad pun, which is where babies can start to legitimately eat meat and organs. And in fact, I would say that is the ideal first food for babies. This article that I showed earlier, which I will return to, corroborates that in many accounts. So let's look at this article, which I think is a great source for any parents who are interested in this. What we find is that there are many incidences of Iron deficiency. So as they say here, iron requirements drastically increase around six months of age from 0.27 milligrams per day to 11 milligrams per day. In the United States, an estimated 77% of infants fed human milk have inadequate iron intake during the second half of infancy, which is six months to 12 months. That is because moms are not eating enough meat. There are so many of these nutritional deficiencies, I think that point directly to the critical nature of meat and organs for lactating moms. And so many of the deficiencies to develop suggest that women are not either feeding their babies enough meat or they're not eating enough meat themselves. So how do we get babies this increased iron? We give them meat, we give them iron-rich foods. The best iron-rich foods, meat 
and liver. Yes, you can give your baby liver. Obviously the dose should be pretty small. I would recommend doses of liver for babies in the grams, five grams a day, seven grams a day of cooked liver for an infant, I think would be fantastic. This is again, where something like a desiccated organ supplement is very essential, or at least very, this is again, something where something like a, this is again, an instance where something like a desiccated organ supplement, like we make it hard in soil could be really helpful. Just one capsule desiccated organ supplements would be a very convenient way to get organs for a six month old baby. I've spoken about this before. It's, it's emotional for me. One of the reasons that I built heart in soil was for my mom and my dad, but also for my sister and her kids. And the fact that I knew that these kids may not get a lot of liver in their life. I don't even know if my sister's kids have ever had liver, but they've definitely had heart and soil supplements. It's easy to mix those things into other foods. You could even mix them into cooked meat. You could mix them into milk. You can mix them into applesauce. But as this article points out, from four to six months, especially in that period, and then from six to 12 months, kids don't eat a lot of food. So the food that you give them, I believe the food that we give them should be very nutrient rich. What is the most nutrient rich food? It's organs and meat. These are, and this is within the mainstream guidelines now, from 2020 to 2025, meat is considered an optimal first food. Now, fortified rice cereal is also considered an optimal first food, which is complete bullshit in my opinion. Why you'd give your kid something that's fortified or needs to be fortified is absurd, but uh, I think it's important to note nonetheless that meat is widely considered to be an optimal first food, not something that's talked about enough. Now they say um, iron is much more bioavailable in human milk than it is in other sources, but heme iron is pretty darn bioavailable. Iron in breast milk, very available. So as we can see here, there is a study called the Feeding Infants and Toddlers Study, the FIT study. Um, and it looked at families in the United States over probably 14 years, 2002, 2016. They identified iron as a commonly underconsumed nutrient relative to the dietary allowance for infants in the United States. Kids are not getting enough meat. They're just not getting enough meat. Goes on to talk about the importance of zinc. Well, where do we get zinc? We get bioavailable zinc from things like liver and meat or heart, all of those things. They suggest meats, beans, and zinc-fortified infant cereals. Well, these authors are off base here wildly because beans are very poorly available sources of zinc. And there is a really interesting study, which I will show in a moment, showing that if you give someone oysters, which are a great source of zinc, their zinc levels in the blood go up. But if you give those oysters with beans, the blood levels of zinc are massively reduced. If you give those oysters with wheat, specifically a tortilla and beans, the oysters will not lead to any zinc absorption in the human body. So beans and wheat, grains, beans are fantastic ways to bind up that zinc and make it very poorly bioavailable. Any infant or toddler trying to get zinc or any other real mineral nutrient by eating beans is not gonna get any of it. This is really scary stuff. This study needs to be talked about a lot more. Studies on the bioavailability of zinc in man, absorption of zinc from organic and inorganic sources. You can see on the second page, this is the change in plasma zinc micrograms per deciliter when someone eats 120 grams of oysters alone, 120 grams of oysters plus 120 grams of frijoles, beans, and 120 grams of tortillas, zero. So tortillas, beans will massively decrease the bioavailability of zinc. You cannot quote 
mineral amounts in grains, nuts, seeds, or beans without considering the bioavailability of those minerals. This is widely misunderstood within mainstream society. And there are many sources on the internet that would say that beans are a great source of zinc or lentils are a good source of iron, none of which is bioavailable. This is a travesty and it's very misleading for so many people and that is scary. So where do kids get zinc? They get it from meat and organs. Again, a little bit of liver, five, 10 grams a day, small amount of liver, less than half an ounce. An ounce is 28 grams, a little bit of meat. And you can cook the meat, you can grind it up, you can make it into a pudding, you can do all kinds of things with it uh, to make it palatable for those kids. I love this. Furthermore, studies show infants accept red meat, such as pureed beef, just as well as infant rice cereal as a first complimentary food. No shit. But only 10% of 12 to 24 month old toddlers ate beef. This is why our kids are fatter, more insulin resistant, more unhealthy. It's super sad. So compared with other meat sources, such as poultry, lamb, and pork, or other protein sources as seafood, nuts, beans, and soy, red meat, such as beef, is higher in iron, zinc, choline, B12, and B6. And guess what? You want your kid to get something like riboflavin, give them some heart, or give them some desiccated heart. But here's the deal. When you look at this stuff, in this article, they talk about the fact that most kids are just eating chicken. I'm scared to think that it's probably chicken nuggets or they're eating fish, or they're eating turkey or lamb. They're not getting beef, but this is where the nutrients are. This is really the ideal first food for infants. This is a great chart from the paper, Nutritional Comparison of Commonly Introduced First Foods for Infants and Essential Nutrients for Healthy Human Development, Healthy Early Development. Nutrients include iron, zinc, choline, B12, B6. I mean, obviously there is a ton of nutrients that are essential for healthy early development, but beef crushes everything, way more zinc than chicken, um, significantly more B12, significantly more choline. I mean, and then it's not even in the same ballpark as something like infant rice cereal or infant cereal, which is oatmeal or squash, any of those things. It's, it's travesty. Here's, let's compare avocado, sweet potato, green beans, kidney beans, banana squash, edamame, and peanut butter it's a joke when you look at these, this, I think this table is meant to go across both panels, but if you look at these and you compare these, I'm not saying kids can't eat avocado. That would be a decent food. I would feed my kids avocado. I would feed my kids squash and I would feed my kids banana, but I would make sure that meat was the main thing. If there is a group that should be animal-based, in my opinion, this is infants and toddlers, six to 12, six to 24 months, let these kids eat meat. Let them eat a lot of meat. Let them eat as much meat as they want. Get a few organs in there, either desiccated or fresh, and then let them eat some fruit. Maybe a little avocado, maybe some squash. They can't eat honey until they're a year old, according to the guidelines, because of potential contamination of clostridial spores. So don't do honey at that age, but some good grass-fed milk or yogurt would be fantastic. Butter for these kids. This is not going to be hard. I seriously think that there is a massive sea change that could happen in households across the United States. I want to write a kid's book about this. I don't know if it'll ever come to fruition. In what happens at the dinner table or the breakfast table or the lunch table, I don't think you will ever have to fight your kids to eat meat, a little bit of organs mixed in there maybe, but hide it, to eat eggs, to eat fruit when they're old enough, to eat honey, to eat butter. Your kid is going to be so healthy 
And those are the foods that they want. Why are we fighting kids and having them eat vegetables like spinach? Why are we giving kids things in plastic? Don't do that. And a lot of baby food is contaminated with very high levels of heavy metals, which is again, very, very tragic. So as I said earlier in this podcast, most of this was spurred, inspired by a trip to Whole Foods. I just happened to be in the baby food aisle and I thought, look at this. This is so sad that we're feeding our kids baby food that's in plastic. There's certainly xenoestrogens in those plastics. It's sad that we're feeding our kids spinach. Please don't give your kids oxalate rich spinach. Your kids don't need kale. They don't need isothiocyanates. They need iodine so the thyroids work. Kids don't need vegetables. It's okay. I know mom, grandma, like you told us to eat our vegetables. They were well-intentioned, but they were wrong. Hopefully in the future, moms and grandmas will tell their kids to eat their meat, to eat their steak, to eat their hamburger. Maybe it's topped in a little bit of butter, some sea salt, maybe an egg yolk on top, maybe some liver, maybe some heart, maybe some desiccated organs from heart and soil supplements with a little banana on the side or some watermelon or some orange or some blueberries or some strawberries, honey, if they're old enough. This is what kids will eat easily. And this is what kids will be nourished on in the deepest way because they need the nutrients found in these foods, things like taurine, things like choline, things like biotin, things like iron, things like zinc, which kids are deficient in. And then nutrients that we haven't even talked about, riboflavin, more on K2, et cetera. This is how kids thrive. This is how humans thrive. What's good for kids will also be good for adult humans. Why are we even having conversations right now about meat being bad for us when it's so clearly essential for little humans to thrive? What, it becomes bad for us in our 40s? This is crazy. This makes absolutely no sense. Feed your kids well, feed yourself well, model it for them, but don't give your kids foods that are low in nutrients. Don't give them foods that are going to prevent the absorption of nutrients like tortillas and beans, frijoles. Don't do that. I don't know who eats oysters on a tortilla with beans in general, but that will completely abrogate the absorption of the zinc. So in summary, kind of a wide ranging podcast, it's important to know that the mainstream dietary guidelines suggest meat as an optimal first food. Yes, your kid can eat animal-based. They can eat meat and fruit, get them some organs fresh or desiccated, get them some grass-fed milk. If you believe that raw milk is good and you're willing to take the risk of contamination, get them some raw milk, give them a raw egg yolk. Again, there's always a risk of contamination with raw foods, but um, I think it's something that I, I do personally and I would probably do for my kids. Just make sure your sourcing is good. Don't do what I do. Furthermore, if you're breastfeeding, mom should be eating that way. Absolutely. How much should you eat? Refer to the previous videos on how to eat an animal-based diet. Mom needs to get a gram of protein per pound of body weight, plus a few ounces of organs a day, either fresh or desiccated. Make sure you get plenty of sunlight, mom, so that vitamin D goes in your breast milk. Babies will be healthy. The hardest situation is when moms can't breastfeed. I suggested my hypothesis of maybe a formula in this podcast. That may get me a lot of blowback. Again, it's not my recommendation that you do it. It's just what I would try if I were in that situation. Maybe it's something that I'll revise in the future as I learn more and I think about it, but I at least wanted to offer it. Let's you take it and research it and think about it and think about why it might be good or not good. In summary, that was a grass-fed, grass-finished milk. You gotta be careful feeding raw milk to infants. Again, if you trust the source, maybe, but there are contamination and you'd hate to see a baby get sick from a raw milk. So I can't recommend that, or I don't know if I would do that. But anyway, grass-fed, grass-finished goat or cow milk, maybe some colostrum, either fresh or desiccated, a little bit of cooked liver, a little bit of cooked meat, maybe a raw egg yolk or a cooked egg yolk. I think that'll be a good start. So hopefully that's helpful, guys. I get a lot of questions about how to feed babies, 
how to feed kids, feel free to reach out on Instagram and DMs. If you have questions, we try to get to as many as we can. You can always reach out to Heart and Soil at RadicalHealth at HeartAndSoil.co. The team there is awesome. We've got a whole staff of health coaches. They can answer a lot of your questions regarding infant and kid nutrition, but this is how we make superhuman kids that are smart, that are kind, that are emotionally balanced, that'll help us solve problems of the next generation. And if you're feeding your kids this way, you got to eat this way too. And I know that will improve your own health. So hopefully this podcast is helpful. Love you all. See you next week.